to note, as Randy did, that this, what we will be doing over the course of the next four weeks is not our normal preaching and teaching diet. We normally preach through books of Scripture, expound a passage, and apply it to life. Uh, we are, after all, Christ's Bible church. Uh, today, however, and uh, subsequent Sundays, we're doing something different. Uh, we will talk about uh, what is known as critical theory, uh, an outlook that has gained uh, certain traction in society, certain influence at various levels of society. And as elders, we thought it would be worth taking time to uh, discuss this view, explain it, and then offer a biblical evaluation. We're going to do this, Lord willing, today. And the aim here is to help you and your children live faithfully in what is an increasingly confusing world. Uh, so let's pray for God's blessing, and then we'll jump in. Our Father in heaven, you are incomparable, great and glorious, eternal and good through and through. We come into your sacred presence, not because of anything in us, but on the basis of the finished work of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you are our Father, and we humbly ask that you would be pleased to help us to live wisely in this confusing world, that we might bear much fruit for your glory and do good to others. Father, we pray for grace to take every thought captive to your word. We pray that our lives would be shaped not by the uh, rebellious ideologies of this world, but by your word. Father, if there are any in the grip of unbiblical ideologies this morning, we pray that you would be pleased to liberate them and grant them to submit to your word and its life-giving truth. Uh, please bless what we undertake today. Use it to make us wise in the world that we live in. You've called us to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Uh, use your word this morning to make us wise, that we might live for your glory. Uh, help us to know how to shape our children and to point others to your son Jesus in this world. Amen. Uh, I suspect that many of us have the sense that we're living in a strange new world. Uh, we're all familiar now with cancel culture, for instance. Uh, speakers being deplatformed, disinvited to universities because they have fairly traditional views of sex and gender, for instance. You may have heard about J.K. Rowling, the author of the well-known Harry Potter books. She was a big cultural icon for a long time until she said something as controversial as uh, the fact that there are real distinctions between men and women. She was labeled in some quarters as transphobic uh, because she had the audacity to say what until quite recently many people would have taken for granted. There's an obsession with language that we see. Instead of Latina, Latino, uh, we hear in some quarters Latinx, gender, a gender-neutral variant of Latina and Latino. Uh, there's a proliferation of new words. Cisgender, mansplain, widesplain, genderqueer, microaggression, centering, heteronormative, woke, uh, and privilege, which is a common word but used in a new way. Even new slogans, silence is violence. And many of us are looking around at these developments and we're bewildered. What's going on? Part of the reason we're bewildered is because we see the fruit but not the tree. The fruit is clear to us but the tree is invisible. Uh, the specific worldview or outlook that gives rise to these kinds of things isn't clear to us but the manifestations of the worldview are. And so the aim of this message and uh, subsequent messages is to clarify the underlying worldview and to evaluate it biblically. Uh, we want to do this because this is a relatively influential uh, system of thought, and uh, we think that dissecting it biblically will help us to live more faithfully for the glory of Jesus Christ, 
uh, and it will equip us to help disciple our children, especially if they're around high school, college age, to show them the problems with these alien ideologies and help them to live faithfully. Uh, so that's the goal. This alternative worldview goes by many names, intersectionality, social justice, uh, critical theory, woke, wokeism, uh, and so on. But it essentially has uh, a specific view of society, and we're going to look at that view today. We're going to look at critical social theories. This is a family of ideas that have a certain understanding of society, and in this family, critical race theory is probably the most prominent member of the family. Uh, but understand that critical social theories have a unified view of society, of oppression, and justice. And so we are going to look at this vision of society and justice. Uh, understand that what I say about critical social theories generally applies to critical race theory specifically. I'll say more about that uh, on a different Sunday. But today we're going to speak more broadly about critical social theories. Understand that it applies also to critical race theory. So let's start with a definition of critical social theories. Uh, Bradley Levinson, in his book Beyond Critique, gives us a helpful summary of these theories. Uh, Bradley Levinson himself subscribes to these ideas. Uh, I think it's the first quote on the back. Don't look at the other quotes, not that helpful, but it might be helpful for this one specifically to look at uh, what he says. Here's his definition. We can say that critical social theories are those conceptual accounts of the social world that attempt to understand and explain the causes of structural domination and inequality in order to facilitate human emancipation and equality. It's a mouthful. Good, solid academic prose. Uh, convoluted. Uh, three things I want you to notice about this definition. First, it is taken for granted, it is assumed that society is defined by oppressors and oppressed, that the social world is defined by domination and equality. It is assumed that there are different social groups who are in constant conflict with each other. You have oppressor groups and oppressed groups, and that's the lens through which society is viewed, uh, defined by power struggles between competing groups. That's number one. That's, that's their vision of society. Secondly, notice that oppression is structural or systemic. In other words, oppression is not reinforced simply by one aspect of society, like police force. It is reinforced in all sorts of ways, in all social realities. That's the second thing. And third, the goal of theory is human emancipation and equity. They want equality. Not equality before the law, like everybody's treated the same way, but equality of outcome. Different social groups like men and women, black and white, will have basically the similar life outcomes. And they seek to bring this about through nothing less than social revolution, tearing down the present social structures to bring about this uh, conception of human freedom. So we're going to take our cue from Levinson, and we are going to look specifically at A, society as made up of oppressed and oppressors, B, Oppression is everywhere, that is, it's systemic. And see, the goal of theory is to overcome oppression through social revolution. So we will offer a summary of these ideas, and then we will conclude with a biblical evaluation. So let's start with their view of society. Uh, you have oppressor groups, and you have oppressed. You have those with access to privilege and power, and those who are held down by inequitable structures. 
Uh, the present arrangement of society benefits certain groups and holds down other groups. Scott David Allen puts it this way. This new ideology is characterized by its obsession with power, oppression, and victimization. It sees a world divided between evil oppressors and innocent victims in a zero-sum power struggle. Nothing exists outside these categories. So constant conflict between different social groups. And here you see a similarity between modern theories and Karl Marx. He is, in a sense, the first critical theorist, and he conceived of society in conflict terms. You had uh, conflict between different economic classes. You had uh, those who controlled the factories, the land, the means of production, and society was arranged to benefit them and hold down the worker who was employed by the owners of the means of production. Uh, so you see the, the same sort of conception of society as characterized by conflict between different groups. The difference, though, with modern theories is that they've expanded the range of categories, social categories, that they deem relevant for understanding oppression. So whereas Marx would look at economic oppression, modern theory looks at race, uh, gender identity, sex, sexual orientation, uh, religion, disability, even more recently with fat theory, uh, obesity uh, is viewed as a, a victimized group. The, these are viewed uh, as the social categories relevant to assessing who has privilege in society and who is oppressed. Oppressor groups, uh, social groups identified as oppressed are black people, other racial minorities, women, gays and lesbians, transgendered individuals, the disabled, and again, even the obese more recently are viewed as potential victims. And society is organized against these people to keep them down. That's the idea. Uh, who are the oppressor classes? Well, white people, uh, white men specifically, white straight men more specifically, white straight Christian men more specifically. Uh, th these are the oppressor categories. It's uncomfortable. Uh, or some of us who might fit into some of those so-called oppressor categories, but there they are. There are others as well, but these are some of the key ones. Uh, so how, do they, how is it that they come to this assessment about which groups are oppressors and which are oppressed? Well, they would say, which, they would look at which groups have had power historically and in the present, and on that base, basis they would say that those who have had more access to power are oppressor groups, less access uh, victim groups. But also significantly, they look, this is key, they look at social disparities between different groups and they interpret those social disparities as evidence of systemic injustice and oppression. So for example, if at Google, 80% of software engineers are men and 20% are women, it can't be the case that there are fundamental differences between men and women affecting life outcomes. That interpretation is not viable. Uh, that disparity between men and women must be interpreted as evidence of oppression and injustice. And they do this consistently and across the board. If there's any disparity between different social groups, injustice, oppression is proven. So that's their vision of society, constant conflict between different groups. How does oppression happen? How does the dominant group maintain its control over society and uh, keep the victimized groups down? Well, the key here is to recognize that the dominant group doesn't maintain its control through the use mainly of things like physical force, the police. Instead, all of society, all social realities 
are so arranged that the dominant class benefits. Oppression is everywhere. Oppression is reinforced by a wide range of social phenomena. And these include how we speak about things or don't speak about things can be oppressive or not. Certain ideas which society deems as true or false can be oppressive. Certain social institutions like schools uh, can be oppressive. Politeness codes can be uh, oppressive. I'll give you some examples in a moment. Uh, but here, is, uh, here are some, I think, helpful summaries of this understanding of oppression. This one comes from James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose in their excellent book, Cynical Theories. This is what they observe. Power is not exercised straightforwardly and visibly from above. In other words, it's not just clear acts of oppression through physical force. That's not how power operates mainly. Power is not exercised straightforward, uh, straightforwardly and visibly from above, but permeates all levels of society and is enforced by everyone through routine interactions, expectations, social conditioning. So what causes oppression? Everything. Language, interactions, how you raise children. It's all politicized. It's all potentially oppressive. Robin D'Angelo, in her book, Is Everyone Really Equal? She answers no, uh, in case you were wondering. Uh, again, someone who's sympathet sympathetic to theory, she says, inequality not only exists, but is deeply structured into society in ways that secure its reproduction everywhere. And again, James Lindsay, they, that is social activists, um, they interpret the world through a lens that detects power dynamics in every interaction, utterance, and cultural artifact, even when they aren't obvious or real. So let me give you some examples. Uh, ideology can be oppressive. The big sweeping ideas that we as a society deem to be true, these ideas can reinforce inequality and oppression. Take, for example, the idea of individual autonomy. Roughly speaking, individual autonomy says that you, as a, as a person, you can reflect on your life, make life choices, uh, and basically determine your outcome in life. You are, in a sense, free. Well, this would be viewed as an oppressive ideology because it blinds victims to the fact that they're not free. If you're in one of the victim classes, society is so arranged to hem you in, hold you back. And so individual autonomy is viewed as an oppressive idea because it blinds you to the oppression that you're experiencing. It's an example. Another example. Uh, social institutions like school can be oppressive both through what they teach and how they teach it. So schools tend to emphasize reason, logic, argumentation, uh, these are tools of knowing identified with the oppressive classes, with white men generally. Uh, victim classes often have other knowledges, other ways of knowing, personal experience, and emotion. And so schools, by preferring evidence, reason, more, more recently math was criticized as being a tool of oppression, um, because they don't favor alternative ways of knowing, it silences certain voices. Lindsay writes, evidenced Evidenced and reasoned arguments are understood as Western constructs and are therefore considered invalid or even oppressive. So the, ins the insistence on intellectual rigor is one form of oppression. Obsession with language, how language is used. 
insisting that someone be a he or a she, a Latina or a Latino, this is oppressive because it excludes uh, gender minorities, gender queer people who don't fall into those categories. Their experience is excluded by the ways we, we use language. Uh, what it means to not fall into one of those basic categories, I don't know, uh, but there it is. Le how we use language is viewed as potentially oppressive. Politeness, the expectation that we be civil to one another can be oppressive. Uh, Vodi Bakum in his book, Fault Lines, uh, gives an example from a curriculum designed to help encourage and foster constructive dialogue between different groups. And uh, here's what it says. Do not chastise people of color or dismiss their message because they express their grief, fear, or anger in ways that you deem inappropriate. Understand that historically, we white people have silenced voices of dissent and lament with our cultural idol of niceness. Provide space for people of colors to wail, cuss, and even yell at you. That should make for good conversation, apparently. But I mentioned it only because it shows how even politeness codes and the expectation that we would be civil and speak respectfully, not cuss at each other, for instance, even politeness codes are viewed as potentially oppressive by silencing certain voices. And finally, Robin DiAngelo gives an example in her book, in her book, of even how even speech patterns can be oppressive. White men speak more, for instance, at least that's the claim, uh, as a group. And they allow less pause time in between contributions in a conversation than other groups. So they're quick to take the floor. And that speech pattern can be oppressive as well. I give all of these examples to help you see how this framework operates. Uh, injustice and oppression are not simply a matter of pointing to concrete laws that say, okay, that law specifically oppresses this group. No, no, no. Oppression is much more nebulous. Uh, it's, it's like a cloud that, or a mist that comes over society. It's everywhere. And theory is interested in these non-obvious, perhaps non-existent, forms of oppression and injustice. Robin D'Angelo says, work from the knowledge that the societal default is oppression. There are no spaces free of it. Thus, the question becomes, how is it manifesting here rather than is it manifesting here? So if you buy into this vision of society, you assume that there are always power imbalances. Uh, in the boardroom, there are imbalances between men and women, and you want to constantly point to those imbalances and attack them and complain about them and point them out. Oppression happens everywhere in non-obvious ways. I want to add a quick clarification at this point. You can be an oppressor and not know it. You can be an oppressor and not mean to oppress. Uh, people in power and people who have privilege in society may not be aware of the fact that society is structured to benefit them. Uh, they may not be actively trying to harm anyone. They not, may not be ill will, but they are still oppressors simply as a result of the social group that they are a part of. Again, D'Angelo writes, society is structured in ways that make us all complicit in systems of inequality. There is no neutral ground. Most discrimination is unconscious, she says, and takes place whether we intend to discriminate or not, despite genuinely held beliefs in fairness and equality. So you are wicked whether you mean to be or not, simply because of your social location. Uh, we hear slogans like, check your privilege. That means wake up, you're benefiting in all kinds of ways because of the unequal arrangement of society. Wake up to it, that's what it means to be woke, incidentally. You wake up to all of these injustices everywhere. Uh, we can dispute if that's 
a matter of waking up or reading non-existent wrongs into society. It's a separate issue. Uh, but to be woke is to see this kind of power imbalance everywhere. Uh, and if you are in one of the privileged classes, you are an oppressor whether you mean to be or not. Okay, so what are its aims and methods? Well, critical social theories are intended to help you identify non-obvious forms of oppression and injustice. Uh, they are like pink colored glasses. You put them on and everything becomes pink. If you subscribe to these theories, you begin to see injustice everywhere. You may have heard the slogan, make oppression visible. That's what these theories are designed to do. They're designed to give you conceptual tools to find oppression lurking everywhere in language and so on. And so how do they address these uh, social problems, this oppression? One basic way, complain constantly. Constantly pick at power imbalances. Accuse people of racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia. Uh, and you do this for the sake of silencing dissent. And it's effective. You lose your job. People are slandered. It works. But you pick constantly at what you perceive to be the power imbalances that exist in society. And you do it over and over again. Everything is a problem and whine about it incessantly until you exhaust people, get them fired, or marginalize them. That is the methodology, and we can all think of probably plenty of examples of that. So what's the goal? Social revolution. A complete toppling of present social structures. A radical reconfiguring of society to replace it with something else. This is not just like me criticizing them of that. That's what they acknowledge is their goal. Tear it down. Uh, Anne Hathaway, the, the actress, was given the National Equality Award, and in her speech she talked about the myth of centering reality around whiteness, and then commented, together we are not going to just question that myth, we are going to destroy it. Let's tear this world apart and build a better one. Uh, there's an American author named um, Tanehasi Coates, I'm sure I butchered the name, he's an American author. Uh, but he speaks of America as an awful, no good, very bad, racist country that we ought to despise, tear down, and remake. That's not just hyperbole. When they talk about tearing down and remaking, they're serious, and we should take them seriously. What they're this is a revolutionary ideology that wants to destroy the present order. And replace it with what? What's the ideal order? Well, at one level, it aims at equality of outcome, as I mentioned earlier. In an ideal society, men and women would have basically the same life outcomes. It can't be true that there's a fundamental difference instituted by God between men and women leading to different outcomes. No, no, no. In an ideal society, everyone's the same. Everyone has similar life outcomes. Now, part of the problem, as even theorists acknowledge, is they really can't acknowledge what they're trying to build. They can point out injustice everywhere, and they can say enthusiastically, let's burn it to the ground, but when pressed, what are you going to replace it with? Uh, they acknowledge that they don't have a very clear plan. Look at, um, for instance, Bradley Levinson. He says, it, that is critical social theories, is not so good at specifying the means of liberation. Criticalists are notoriously vague and hopelessly naive, some would say, about the specifics of emancipation. It's precisely what we should want, shouldn't we? Specifics of emancipation if you want to destroy society. He goes on and says, 
Is it so bad, after all, to say, I don't know what an ideal society looks like, but it certainly ain't this? Yes, it's really bad, right? This is a a frivolous philosophy to say we're going to destroy the things that many of us love and attach us to life, as Roger Scruton says. We're going to destroy it all and to, to replace it with what? Well, it's not clear, but we know it's bad, so tear it down. And again, this is not just something, an accusation that comes from the outside of theorists. Theorists themselves uh, defend this position. So what do we say about this? What do we say about this vision of society and oppression, which is everywhere, and the aim of social revolution? Well, I hope that as I've worked through this in your mind, they've come like, oh, that's problematic for that reason or that reason. Uh, There is far more to say than I will say today, but I want to identify four ways in which theory is out of step with Scripture. The first way, and to me this is key, is that theory wrongly defines oppression and therefore wrongly defines justice. It wrongly defines oppression, therefore wrongly defines justice. Uh, First way in which it does this is by finding injustice and oppression where, frankly, it doesn't exist. They're like the man who cut off his right hand because his thumb was smaller than his pointer finger. Took dramatic steps to solve a non-issue, right? Uh, That's how wokeism operates. It looks at social disparities, again, between men and women. There are too many many male engineers, too few female engineers, so we need to change this company, we need to change society— When in fact, those discrepancies may not be oppressive at all, but God's design for society. And we can multiply examples, but many things that they view view as oppressive are simply part of the natural order of things. They find oppression where, frankly, it doesn't exist, and then they take very dramatic, hurtful steps to fix non-existent oppression. This seems to be a fundamental problem. Proverbs 19.11 says, it is his glory, a man's glory, to overlook an offense. Just the reverse is true of theory. Not only do you not overlook an offense, but you find offenses where they don't even exist. It's unbiblical at that level. Second, and closely related to point one, uh, it tends to exaggerate small or non-existent wrongs while ignoring real evils. So theory is obsessed with how we use language and ideas, and if somebody doesn't speak the right way about racial minorities, they pounce. They're prepared to try to solve obscure, less obvious injustices by committing real injustices. So people are slandered, pressure is put on people's employer to get them fired if they don't fall in line with the prevailing ideology. Uh, They destroy reputations that take a lifetime to build. uh, Unemployment is a consequence of these kinds of accusations. They commit real injustice in the name of fixing non-obvious oppression and injustice. And what Jesus says of the Pharisees with uh, small tweaking can be applied to to them. Jesus says, Matthew 23, 20, verse 23 and 24, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. So they, they tithe for even their herbs. They're paying attention to the minutia of what the law requires and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done with, without neglecting the others. It's good that you pay attention to these minor things, but what about the big things? Well, in a similar way, by paying attention to non-obvious forms of oppression, they're missing gross acts of injustice that they're committing, or subscribers to this view commit. Jesus goes on and says, you blind guides 
straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Get hung up on these little speech codes and you miss how you destroy lives. Another way in which it's, uh, it's oppressive is its goal. Equality of outcome is oppressive. It's said to be just, but it is oppressive. Uh, we know the hell on earth that the communists produced when they tried to uh, create equality of outcome bef- between uh, different economic classes. Whenever the state wields its power to create equality of outcome, it is misery, misery, misery for all involved. The ideology becomes a major tool of oppression, not justice. Milton Friedman writes, a society that puts equality in the sense of equality of outcome ahead of freedom will end up with neither equality nor freedom. The use of force to achieve equality will destroy freedom, and the force introduced for good purposes will end up in the hands of people who use it to promote their own interests. Equality of outcome for different social groups is not a biblical ideal, and it produces misery and chaos. Now, it's the, it is the case that uh, theory or wokeism has made some inroads into the church, especially among younger people. And part of the appeal seems to be this, you know, as Christians, we want to fight for justice. We want to stand up for the oppressed and stand against the oppressor. Uh, especially, you know, young people want something to live for. And that's good and noble and right, except that you need to understand that theory operates with a radically unbiblical conception of justice and oppression. And the irony is that those who buy into these theories become themselves agents of real injustice and oppression. So be wary. Think about how justice and oppression are defined. Don't simply respond to the claim to stand up for victims. Analyze what's actually being said. It is a deeply unbiblical conception of right and wrong and receives the condemnation of God, Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, which theory does, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. To call right wrong and wrong right is from Scripture uh, a serious act of wickedness, a moral failure, and it is under the judgment of God. So we need to be wary of how these false systems define good and evil. We need to let the word of God define right and wrong, justice and oppression. We need to let God tell us what we owe our fellow man and what we don't owe them. Scripture, not man-made theories, should define justice and oppression. And by the way, this is a temptation, not just in terms of theory, but even in church life, is it not? To go beyond what is written. We have God's word that tells us what he wills of us, but it's easy to elevate our traditions our experiences, our preferences to the level of God's word and insist other people abide by that. We want to define the will of God scripturally, not in terms of man-made preferences. So that's the first real problem with theory. It wrongly defines oppression and justice. Secondly, it views authority and authority structures as inherently evil. It is suspicious of authority. Groups that have authority and wield it over others are viewed as oppressor groups. This is not a biblical position. Authority is good. God has established systems of authority in the world that we should respect and honor. Now, like every one of God's good gifts, authority can be hijacked and abused and misused, and when it is misused, it is oppressive. But authority in itself is a good thing. We acknowledge that the state, our governing authorities, uh, are given authority by God, and we ought to honor them and submit to them to the extent that doing so doesn't mean violating God's law. 
Uh, Christians are not anarchists. We want wise, effective leaders who govern well and make just laws that punish the wicked and promote righteousness, and we want to honor such people and submit to them. There's authority structures in the church. There are pastors. We're called to submit to our pastors. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Children are called to submit to parents. And where authority is wisely used, it's life-giving, not crushing. 2 Samuel 23, 3 through 4. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It's a biblical description of authority well used. When you're under good authority, wise leadership, life is enhanced. You flourish. Theory, on the other hand, has constantly encouraged us to do what comes so naturally to us, which is to be insubordinate. Insubordination is a great sin in the Bible. To reject the, the authority structures God has put in our lives and to do what we want is wickedness, and uh, wokeism encourages that wickedness. There's a sense in which uh, John Milton's Satan character in the great work of literature, Paradise Lost, um, expresses this kind of insubordination. He says very famously that it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Self-assertion. Do what I want, even if it makes me miserable. That's better than submitting to anyone. Right? That's Satan's perspective. Insubordination is a great wickedness before God, and we should see it as such. We should celebrate wise and effective leadership and honor those whom God has put in authority over us, not kick at them as we assert our rights. Third, a person is, not guilt, a person is guilty or righteous because of their social position, according to theory. Uh, if you're part of the victim class, uh, then you are naturally good. If you're one of the oppressor class, you are naturally evil, benefiting from social inequality. Well, this is a profoundly unbiblical way to think about right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness. The Bible says that all, Jew and Gentile, all social groups are unrighteous before God. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Black and white, male and female, regardless of what your social position is, you are a sinner, a rebel against God and under his judgment. And your deepest need is not to have society reconfigured for your benefit, your deepest need is for God to take initiative to send a savior. Uh, I don't know if it was a year or two ago, Randy gave me this great mug for Christmas. It has a um, picture of a Santa Claus on the mug, but the Santa Claus is not merry or bright. He's scowling. So Santa Claus on the mug is scowling, and, uh, and then the, the quote underneath is, you're all naughty, Romans 3.10. Uh, that, I think that beautifully sums up the biblical take on these different social categories. You're all naughty. Thanks, Randy. That's a good mug. Um, the Bible teaches us that we don't judge people based on the social group that they come from. They're male or female, black and white. We judge them on the basis of God's moral law. So, for example, in Leviticus uh, 1915, uh, we are told you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. It's interesting. It's a warning against partiality to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. In other words, you don't judge based on social class. You judge every individual according to the moral law of God and according to their character. Did they do right and wrong as measured by God's law? If, sh if so, they should be commended, and if not, they're guilty. It's not your social location that makes you guilty. It's your violation of the law of God. Final point. Theory encourages division among people. 
It encourages resentment, frustration, envy, suspicion. Instead of charitably interpreting what people say, we are always suspicious that some sort of power play is happening, and it destroys the possibility of unity among people, especially people of different social groups. Think for a moment what it would, what it would be like if you have two individuals, one member of the oppressor groups, one a member of the oppressed groups, uh, what would it look like for them to be friends? Let's assume they bought into theory. The one in the oppressor groups is supposed to be silenced, not criticized, listen. Uh, the one in the oppressed group is, is constantly told to look for power imbalances, power plays, and to accuse. The, the possibility of friendship is non-existence if they buy into this theory. There's constant suspicion, resentment, envy. Those in positions of power want to perhaps resent the attempts of the people below them to get them out. People below them constantly view of those above them with envy. It creates social division, suspicion. It breaks bonds. It destroys unity. And it's demonic in that sense. The work of the Holy Spirit is to unite people who are different, right? to bring us together as one people. Uh, theory divides us by social category. It produces a kind of hell on earth that C.S. Lewis describes in this way. We must picture hell as a state where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives in the deadly serious passions of envy and resentment. That's our society, envy and resentment. You have more power than I do. I'm, I'm a victim, I'm oppressed, and so on. Christ came into the world to do just the opposite of what theory does. Christ came into the world to take people in different social categories, even natural enemies, to take Jew and Gentile, white and black, man and woman, and make them one people, whose identity is fundamentally not defined by the social category they're in, but by the shed blood of Christ. Galatians 3.28, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We, as Christians, we rejoice in the fact that we are fundamentally defined not by our social position, but by the work of Jesus. We are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, that is fundamentally who we are. And understand that as we as a church pursue Jesus together, we get unity. The irony is if you pursue unity as such, you won't get it. But if you pursue Jesus, you love Jesus. He's the center of your life. You submit to him. What you find increasingly is that you are united to people who have nothing in common with you. Different backgrounds, different culture, different levels of education, different levels of income, we find ourselves becoming one people and one family. Why? Because we are looking to Christ. We are pursuing him. That's what Christ came into the world to do, to unite nat natural en enemies into one family, the church. Theory does just the reverse of this. It divides us up into social groups and makes us suspicious of one another. We should acknowledge that theory is right, at least to this degree. There is an oppression that human beings face. That oppression is not fundamentally the result of where you are in society. According to scripture, we are oppressed, but we are oppressed by our sin. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that we are slaves to sin apart from Jesus. We love evil, we love our rebellion against God, and we hate him, and we can't do a thing to change ourselves. We are far from God and utterly incapable of changing ourselves. That's the oppression and misery that characterizes every single person outside of Jesus Christ. The only hope for that kind of oppression is that God himself would take the initiative to come down and do something for us. We can't fix that oppression by tearing down society and reconfiguring things. We need God to act. And at the heart of our faith, the glorious news of the gospel is that he has. God took pity on us, and in love for sinners, he sent the eternal son, Jesus Christ, into the world. He lived the life that we should have lived, a life of perfect submission to the Father, and at the cross, he bore the condemnation 
the judgment that our guilt and our rebellion against the Creator deserve. He paid it all. And when He had paid it all, He rose from the grave. And there is real freedom from oppression in His name and in His name alone. Those who come to Christ are freed from the terrible oppression of guilt and alienation from God. They are reconciled to God and have peace with God. Those who trust in Christ are freed from the tyranny of sin and have power through the Holy Spirit to increasingly live in submission to God, which is true freedom. Jesus frees men by dealing with the ultimate oppression, which is fundamentally a spiritual oppression. It doesn't matter if you're at the very bottom of the social ladder. If you know Jesus, you are fundamentally and truly free. And if you're at the very top of the social ladder, but you don't know Christ, you are a slave to sin and under the judgment of God. Christ is the one who saves us from our true oppression and brings true freedom to mankind. And if we want to see society changed, that happens as individuals are transformed by the truth of the gospel. As individual lives are submitted to King Jesus and renewed by the Holy Spirit, there will be a visible impact on society. Here's how John Stott describes it. Evangelism is the major instrument of social change. For the gospel changes people, and changed people can change society. We want society to improve, but we're going to do this not by oppressing one group to balance the scales of justice for another. Uh, we're going to do this by pointing people to the one who can truly set us free, and that is Jesus Christ. That's the Christian vision of true freedom and freedom from the oppression of the powers, dark powers of this world. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Help us to wisely interpret this world around us. Help us to critique it biblically. Uh, and help us uh, to bring every thought captive to your will. If there are any of our young people who are drawn to these alien ideologies, we pray that you'd help them to see your truth and reject them. Father, grant that our lives would bear much fruit for your glory. Amen.